morning, everybody. Glad to see some of you here today. Um, hopefully you got an extra hour of sleep with the fall back, and apparently a lot of people decided to go to breakfast because uh, a little lighter than it has been. We're glad you're here, and uh, we want to start with uh, some discussion questions this morning. So where we have been, if this is your first week at ParentU, is we're talking about this idea of authentic faith and how can we have as a goal, right, that we want our children to become Christians, ultimately. That is our sincere desire, deep desire, that our kids would walk with the Lord, and yet uh, we don't have the ability to make them Christians, right? We, We wish we did. We wish there was formulaic and we could just say the magic words or do the right thing and they will become believers, so, um, so today we're going to talk a lot about, again, living out an authentic faith before our kids. We're going to talk about hypocrisy. We're going to talk about, um, you know, how are the things that we're doing, the way that we're living, what messages are we sending to our kids, maybe unintentionally, by the way we do that. So we're going to start with some discussion questions. If you're at a table where there is no, there's not a full table, feel free to move around for the sake of discussion. So here's a few, and you don't have to hit all the questions, of course, but um, if your parents were Christians or are Christians now, how was their faith modeled to you? It's always kind of fun to kind of re-examine what was it like growing up for us? How did we become believers? Some of us grew up as covenant kids, so how was that modeled? How do your kids know you're a believer? By what you say or by what you do? So you can kind of go through that. And based on your regular practice, what priorities are you communicating to your kids? So spend a little bit of time talking about that, and I'll come back up in just a minute. I always hate uh, having you guys stop your discussion because I know you're sharing some amazing stories of uh, different things or insights that you have with each other. Anybody have anything you want to share about maybe the way your parents modeled faith to you? When you were growing up, or did all of you become Christians in college? So. Anyone? I can remember uh, my dad taught Sunday school, and I just remember every Sunday morning getting up and going in like to his bedroom. He would always have all his books and stuff laid out, like studying and reading the Word on Sunday morning. It's like a very vivid memory for me to remember seeing that. Um, and we always went to church. It was, I know last week, Cammie talked about Sabbath a lot, um, but that was a huge uh, priority at our house was going to church. We never missed church. In fact, the only time I remember missing church was uh, the 1980, uh, one of the Olympic hockey games. Dad and I went home early, you know, for the Miracle on Ice to watch the Norway game or something like that. And it was so weird. I remember it because it was so odd that we, we I felt like I was getting away with something skipping church. Um, to go see the miracle on ice, you know. So that was, uh, that was a great, uh, a, an interesting memory. But w- what I remember is how much we never missed church, really. So anything else anyone wants to share? Any insight on that? Um, so we talk about the importance of living out our faith authentically. Um, how, how do we do that? How do we model for our children? What kind of messages are they getting from us? That's kind of where we're going to go today in discussing some of these things. Uh, for younger students, right, what do our, our younger kids get about Christianity 
often they get the rules, right? They get the, the Bible stories that they're getting, as, at least here, and probably you're, if you're doing devotions with them before bedtime or whatever, they're getting all of this Bible knowledge. They just don't have any experience to hang it on. And they understand the rules. And so that's kind of a normal developmental thing. Um, and so we need to let them catch us, right, enjoying the Lord. Cammie talked about that last week. Sabbath, making church a priority. So as their, as their faith develops, um, they don't know how all the Bible stories connect to real life. Um, so one of the things, that, the mistakes that we make is that, that first slide, Mark, where you have, we, you know, we tend to think of discipleship this way, like I've got all this Bible knowledge and I just need to get it from my head into your head. And that is the way you're going to understand that this is true and this is real. But it's really more like this second picture. It's really, we have to take the stories of the Bible and the scriptures and the things that we're seeing and reading and interpret it through our brokenness. How is this affecting me? How am I, how is the fact that I need a savior and that I'm a mess, and as I live that out in front of my kids, they start to understand, oh, wait a second, okay, this is how that applies here. Uh, We can think it's just this information transfer when really it is important that we share our struggles, right? That we share the, the, the things that we're doing and going through, the fact that we need a Savior too uh, with our kids. And I think this is one reason why it can be easier at times to disciple someone else's child than your own. That's kind of an aha moment as I was writing this and preparing for this, is I said, why do youth leaders have such an easy time doing this and sometimes parents don't it's because with our own kids we don't want to share all our junk right we don't want to share the mess that i am we definitely don't want to share a lot of our past mistakes uh, and go through the litany of of problems and things that we did maybe before coming to christ or even struggles we had in college or the military or whatever right our own prodigal times are things that we like to put in a cabinet and kind of lock away because we just don't really know how to share that with our kids. And there is, there is wisdom, right, in how we do that and when and appropriately. So it can be hard, but I think that is one reason why sometimes discipling other people's kids, I can be a lot more honest about my mess uh, with your kids when I'm discipling them. Uh, it's easier for me to do that. So here's a thing that I've really have coming to see this more and more, and this, is, this idea has been around for a long time. There's a term, I don't know how many of you have heard this term, it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. Now you're like, whoa, you're dropping some serious, some serious words on me this morning. It might be too early for that. You haven't had enough coffee. But moralistic therapeutic deism. Now this is a term that was coined by two sociologists, Christian Smith and Melinda Denton, back in 2005. So this terminology has been around for a long time. But they said in 2005, when they wrote this book, that really most teenagers... They're not really Christians, what we would call Christians. They are moralistic, therapeutic deists. And so we'll unpack that a little bit. The idea of moralism, right? We already said younger kids get the rules. I actually do think that a lot of students will go through this phase before they become, actually become Christians. They'll struggle with this. The, the key thing is for us to recognize it and for us to not perpetuate this idea, right, of moralistic therapeutic deism. So the moralistic in that they get the rules, it's therapeutic in that they cry out to God uh, only when they need something, right? He's there to fix problems, but that's about it. 
And then deism is this belief in God, but he's not really a personal God. He's not interacting with us on a regular basis. It's kind of like he created the world and the systems and everything, and now he's off doing whatever God does, but he's probably got bigger things to deal with in my life, okay? And the problem is that's not the God of the Bible. That's a God that we've created, this idea of moralistic therapeutic deism. Some other points, again, just to, to restate these, uh, this is a God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth, so they believe in God. Number two is God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. So again, they can say, well, you know, all, all religions kind of lead to God. Um, the central goal in life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. We see that in culture today, right? That's a main uh, way that people tend to think about life. Number four is God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. That's that therapy part, right? The therapeutic aspect. He's really only jumps in when we need him. And that good people go to heaven when they die. Okay, so this idea, and this is from interviewing a lot of students uh, and teenagers, you know, they kind of see these patterns evolve. And so I'm convinced, a student I've been meeting with regularly trying to go through the Life Issues books, and he's exactly here. You know, you talk to your kids and say, and they believe in God. They have this, what we call, again, in, in theological terms, they have an intellectual assent to the truth of the gospel. They believe Jesus is God, right? But he's just not Lord of their life in any aspect. Um, or they don't really know how to make him Lord of their life in other aspects. Um, so when we see this list, what are things that, that in Scripture that are not included in this belief system? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. What kind of attributes or things are not here? What's that? Okay, sinners who need a savior. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's kind of this, oh yeah, if I just am good, uh, it's a very works-based. Uh, there's things, real things that are missing here, like suffering, surrender, um, you know, discipline, duty, brokenness, my sin nature. Uh, because walking with God in the reality of the way it's described in Scripture, is counterintuitive to real life, right? It's counterintuitive the things that God requires of us don't make sense in the world's eyes. You can be a moralistic, therapeutic deist and kind of fit in pretty well with the world's systems, okay? So um, let's look at some Scripture that says this. So in Luke 9, he says this, uh, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. There you have that self-denial. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses himself for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? So the scripture teaches that if we will lose our life, we actually gain it. That we have to actually go against the systems of the world and against the value systems that we see in the world in everyday life. So how, how do we teach this? How do we teach that self-denial leads to glory, right? Which is a major, you, you see it in sports and stuff, right? If you sacrifice hard enough and things like that, you, you, you know, certainly Olympians uh, don't have it easy, right? They tend to really struggle uh, to get where they're going. But, you know, we need to look for those themes in life um, 
and, and teach that on a regular basis. Um, that in living for God is counterintuitive. How are, we, how are we showing that to our kids on a regular basis? How are we showing them that God has a higher value than happiness, which is holiness? Okay, we, we buy into this lie that happiness is a major value for God. I think joy is a value for God, but holiness is more important to him than happiness. And uh, we can buy into this whole thing that really being a good Christian is just about the American dream instead of about holiness. And that, that's tough. That's a hard lesson, right? But how are we, how are we getting that across to our kids? Uh, Romans 8 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. This sounds amazing, right? We are children of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. But look at this last sentence, which we don't read a lot. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. I had a professor in college who told me, you know, this verse gives him pause. He thinks about this all the time. And he actually looks for ways that he can suffer. Because if he doesn't look for it, he's kind of worried God's going to bring the suffering in on him uh, in ways that he doesn't want. So he looks for ways uh, that he can suffer. Because he thinks this, he takes this verse very seriously, and it, it's, it's kind of rolling around in the back of his head. So, so we have to live this out personally. Um, how are we teaching a theology of suffering? Because a moralistic therapeutic deist right? We get into this idea that when suffering really comes, then we feel offended. Hey, wait a second. I've done my part. I was moral. I, I made right decisions. And now this bad thing is happening to me. And it, what does that result in? It results in anger at God, right? I kept my end of the bargain, but you didn't keep your end. And we see that. When we, when we see that kind of thing, we can kind of say, hey, wait a second. Maybe that is a, a misunderstanding about who God really is in the way that my kids are living out their faith. Um, so we have to live this out personally. And there's a, Cammie and I, years ago, she was reading this book that had an illustration, and we, we kind of modified it a little bit for this idea. But I, I never get away from this, and you may have heard me use this terminology before, but it's, it's kind of like our faith to live authentically all the time and what we're trying to get across to our kids. Uh, have you ever been to a restaurant and... Uh, I used to be a waiter, and I can remember people would always order the dressing on the side. You know, you get that little ramekin of dressing on the side, and then you can have as much dressing as you want when and where you want it, right? And, and so a lot of us, we want our Christianity on the side. We want our Jesus on the side. Yeah, I want a little bit of him when I want it. That's that therapeutic aspect again, right? That deistic. I don't really want Jesus in every aspect of my life. I just want him where I want him. In fact, I, had a, a, I was hanging out with a guy one time, and he was remarried, and he was telling me about, his, about how he um, found his second wife online and, uh, in online dating, which is very popular now. And he, he said, yeah, I put in the, in the profile, I, it's super important to me that she be a Christian. He said, now, not too Christian, but that she be a Christian. And I went, oh, okay, wow, you want Jesus on the side, you know? There's areas of your life where you don't really want him in speaking into that part of your life. Um, so, but we don't, our, our life with Jesus is really supposed to be more like a Caesar salad, okay? Now, how do you make a Caesar salad, right? You put everything in the bowl 
or in something and you shake it up and the, and the dressing covers every leaf and crouton and every little bit, right? The dressing is over everything. God wants to be a part of every single aspect of our life. He wants to be in all of our business. And that is something, again, that we need to not only model for our kids, but start questioning them and saying, hey, how are you seeing God working in and out of every aspect of your life? Are we sharing our struggles with our kids? Are we sharing our joys with our kids? Because you are the main billboard for Jesus in your family. You're the, you're the, you're the advertisement that's going on all the time. So if you're not enjoying God, why would we expect our kids to want God and relationship with Jesus, right? If we're the most miserable people they know, um, and yet we're saying Jesus is the answer, that's hard. So we need to, we need to think about that. Um, and Deuteronomy 6, and we say this all the time, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words of mine that I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit at your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as signs on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay, so we can get in our mind, right, that this idea that we're supposed to see our, our kids know who God is by what we say. And yet I think this aspect, there's a lot more than just what we're saying to our kids. It's how they're watching us live our life. Are they seeing that it's on every leaf and crouton of our life? Does God interact and invade every aspect of who we are? Uh, because they catch more from us than they hear, than they listen to us. Um, and we see this over and over again. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, actually, Paul summarizes that Deuteronomy passage in a more simple way because he says, be, in, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Okay, that's just such a simple thing, but that's part of our goal, right? We're supposed to be able to say that to anyone who we're sharing the gospel with. Hey, you need to imitate and do what I do, and if you do that, you're going to have a relationship with Jesus. You're not going to walk perfectly because I don't walk perfectly, but you're going to repent. You're going to see me repent. You're going to see me broken. You're going to see me interpreting the scriptures through my broken life in the same way, and you're going to see me struggle. So our kids, are they imitating us, and what are the messages they're getting from us? Uh, for example, there's a, there's a family um, that I know that we're working out is a major aspect. It's a, a family member that I, I have, and being in physical shape is a huge value for their family. Is there anything wrong with that? No. I went to visit them one time. I hadn't seen them in at least six months. Showed up at their house. Some of their kids are there, and then you know, later on, they're constantly talking about dieting and all the food they're eating. And, you know, you can tell this is a huge value. I'm there. And uh, then they call and say, hey, yeah, I'll be, I'll be home in a couple hours. I got to stop by the gym and work out before I come home. I mean, I just drove like hours to go see them. And they're putting me off to stop at the gym for two hours before they come home. Now, I'm family, so they can do that, right? But what value are they teaching? What is the value of that household? What's the most important thing in that household? How you look is pretty, pretty stinking important. Okay? So, uh, do they realize that that value probably was being pushed a lot harder even than a relationship with Jesus? 
I don't know. Um, maybe you're a family, and again, if I step on toes here, this is not my goal. I want us to think about these things, okay? Um, maybe you're a family that likes to church hop. Uh, a lot of families I've seen over the years doing student ministry and being in church life, well, this week we're going to that church because they had just such amazing worship. It is the best. Well, next week we're going to that church. Their teacher is phenomenal. Well, and the next week I'm going there. Oh, well, yeah, we weren't here this week because we, we did, went to church over here. And what are they teaching? What, what values are they teaching with that? What's that? It's about me, right? It's a consumeristic model of really being a part of church is about meeting my needs, that therapy again. You know, right now I just need the worship that they have down at Passion. I got to go down there because this is going to meet my need. And so it gets into this consumeristic idea. Um, there's a, I looked up a, this idea of uh, a definition for the church. So this is from the International Mission Board. They said, a New Testament church is a group of believers in Jesus Christ who assemble together regularly, who are committed to one another to be the body of Christ together. Now listen to that definition. A church is a group of believers in Jesus Christ who assemble together regularly, who are committed to one another to be the body of Christ together. Right? We have a poor theology of church in the United States. We kind of think it's about us. We kind of feel like consumers. And, but that's not what church is about. Church is about using your gifts and abilities to serve the body where God calls you to serve. And I'll even say this uh, from Watershed, usually at the beginning of the year. I did it last year. Emilio has been teaching Watershed more now. But I would say at the beginning of the school year, hey, I want you here. This is a great place for you. If you'd rather be at a different church, go use your gifts and abilities there and join that church. But you, this is what church is about. It's not about, hey, who's got the coolest thing this week that I go to? It's about being involved and how are we driving this down? Um, sports and achievement is another idol that we have in our society, right? Uh, if you're spending thousands and thousands of dollars on travel teams and every Sunday or for a season, you know, I just read an article this week on Facebook of a, of a youth pastor saying, yeah, I had this conversation for the umpteenth time with a family going, yeah, we won't be around for the next three months because it's whatever season it was and we're going on the road and, and uh, you know, we got a tournament every Sunday. So now is sports bad? No, sports is not bad. Even a travel team, that's between you and Jesus, okay, whether you're going to do that. But here's the thing. If youth group is always optional, if church is always optional, but sports is never optional, or missing that practice is never optional, or going, oh, you're going to miss the game because you've got a retreat this weekend, which one of those do we usually go the opposite? We usually say, nope, you're going to miss the retreat because you've got a tournament this weekend. We don't always go the other way around. Just by that statement, we're communicating something to our kids. And this is what I'm saying. It's not what we're saying. It's the way we're working this out that can be a problem. Uh, again, sports can be amazing, um, but if our, our unintended message is that sports are way more important or academic achievement is way more important than church, you know, there's, you can go down that line for a whole, whole host of different things. So this idea of hypocrisy, uh, in Mark 7, Jesus said, and he, he, was, he was quoting 
Isaiah, he said to them, well, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That is something we need to be very aware of. Again, not that you're going to live out perfectly. We're always going to mess up in front of our kids. So again, can we just be the chief repenters in our household? That's important. But we want to be sure that we're not doing damage. I think it is worse if you have a regular devotion time with your kids and you are hardcore about that, but then you don't really live that out at all. Like if it's, oh, I'm saying all this about Jesus, but then when they watch the way I live, I don't follow that at all. To me, that does much more damage to a budding faith in, a, in the lives of our kids than for us to not do the devotions at all, but talk about Jesus on a regular basis. You see, those are two different focuses. When you do devotions with your kids, you're starting with Scripture, and you're trying to take it to real life. But when you just sit around the kitchen table and have a meal with them and talk about life and your own struggles and things that are hard, and you take that to Scripture, you're, you're dealing with real life. You're making that connection that we talked about. And it's easier because you're starting with where you're at and where your kids are at, and you're taking that to the cross rather than trying to start with a Bible story and figure out how to make it fit with real life. Okay, so that I love that aspect of, of just constantly talking to our kids and living a life of devotion, but other things that we can do that are hypocritical that are that we need to ask ourselves like do we have do we demand absolute first time obedience like is that an idol that we have a respect idol that we have, and we want first time obedience and it 's my way or the highway if that 's the way we are operating as parents, what is the message our kids are getting about grace and about mercy? How are they learning those aspects from us if this is the way that we, how, what are we teaching them about unconditional love? If that's kind of, nope, it's my way or the highway in the way that I parent. Okay, that can work against what we're trying to teach them about Jesus. Um, when we do that, how are we separating childish irresponsibility from rebellion? I've seen parents who take away like, up, oh, you did this, you're losing your phone, you're losing your car keys. I mean, it's like no matter what happens, that's the punishment. They go right to like the most extreme punishment that's going to take place. Um, and there's a difference in out-and-out rebellion with your kids and childish irresponsibility. Are we judging between those two things? Were they just irresponsible here, which is age-appropriate? Do I need to take the phone in the car and everything away from them at that moment? Or do I save that for something when they've lied to me or it's been a, you know, a huge something that I can tell is, 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 is a real heart issue and not a, not a responsibility issue? Um, I knew a student who came from an amazing family and this was years ago in ministry, um, and he went to a private Christian school, and he, suddenly I get this phone call from his parents, man, uh, Johnny's being suspended, he has a problem lying, he's lying all the time, he's lying to his teachers, he's lying to everybody, I mean, this was a pillar of our church, amazing family, loved the kid, too, he was, he was an amazing student, and I meet with him, and we're talking, and what's the deal with the lying, and, and so we work and work and work with him, and, you know, and he kind of turns the corner, or it seems like it, and, and then I find out a, a couple years later, that, talking to him, that his parents, they had a lot of kids, they had five or six kids, his dad would say every time they would go to the movies, or every time they would go to a buffet, hey, lie about your age so that we can get the kids, we can get the kids price, you know, we need to get the kids price with the tickets, we need to get the kids price for the buffet, because you look like you're under 12. Okay, does the lying make a lot more sense now? Because what was he learning in, from his parents? His parents were telling him, you don't ever lie. 
unless you can get the buffet cheaper. <laughs> and then you better darn well, tell, you know, you better, you better do that. But all they're teaching there, right, is that the truth is situational. Well, if it really benefits me, then it's okay to lie. It's okay to lie about buffets. You know, it's okay to lie about, about movie tickets because, so, you know, now when, when we interact with that, because of that story, I'm so aware that when we're in situations where our kids are like, oh, but if we say this, I'm always like, you know what? We're paying full price. We're not, we're not going to try to get away with something because my integrity is worth more than that. My integrity is worth more than saving three bucks on a buffet. And that's a message we have to communicate with our kids on a regular basis. Um, Another aspect that we can do which can damage is if we're just not interested in our kids. We do need to be aware that a lot of this, if we're not engaged, if we just want peace and quiet in our home, we don't really want to sit down and do the hard work. And I'm sorry, we talk about this a lot in here. It always happens at 10 o'clock at night, especially in the teen years. So if your kids are tweens right now, enjoy the sleep that you're getting. Because when they become in high school, my, seems like my high schoolers and my 21-year-old never want to have a significant conversation until 10.30 at night. And I'm exhausted, and I don't know why God does that, but he does. And that's part of my sanctification, I think. That's my dying to myself, because that's when they want to have that, that conversation. But are we, you know, how are they going to learn, though, to be broken over their sin if we, they don't see us be broken over our sin? How are they going to learn to be generous if they don't see us being generous? How are they going to learn to model love for others if they don't see us doing these things? And so, again, this is just a, throwing some questions out there for you. Jesus was, I, I searched hypocrites in the Bible, and it's every time he's talking to the Pharisees. And Jesus, here's an example. Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other things. You know, if you look through, I wish there was so much more on parenting in the Bible than there is. Uh, most of the examples we have aren't the best. Uh, you even have David, who was a man after God's own heart, right? And he was just rocking it until he had an affair and killed her husband and all of that. And there were some pretty serious consequences for that, right? Uh, one of his kids tried to kill him and slept with half of his concubines and wives. Um, one of his kids killed one of his other kids. I mean, his, his, his family was kind of a, a mess in, in a lot of ways. Then you had Solomon, who was also his kid, who became like the wisest man that ever lived. It does give you hope to read through the kings and see, because you have awful kings who had amazing kids, and you had amazing kings who had awful kids, and you're like, okay, well, maybe I fit in with them, right? Uh, it does remind us that God is ultimately the one who is in charge. Now, we don't know in all those situations, of course, much about the kings and how they actually parented, you know? Did they have a lot of interaction with their children? We don't really know. Uh, I would tend to think not. Um, so lastly is this, so we're tempted with our kids to jump in and solve their problems. Um, how do we get them and constantly point them to Jesus in the midst of life, right? For them to develop their own faith and get away from this moralistic therapeutic deism is when things are difficult, and when they're hard, how are we pointing them to Jesus? Because the temptation is for us to be Jesus and want to jump in there with them and help solve the problem. Uh, you know, so when, when they're having a problem with someone at school, you know, for us to sit down and say, hey, that relationship with 
Susie is really difficult, isn't it? Um, what do you think God would have you do in this situation? You're right, that teacher that you have is horrible. I mean, you're, you're really struggling in that class, I can tell. How, why do you think God put you in that class? Or maybe the person sitting next to you there drives you up the wall, or that, that is in your small group this year, is difficult. You think God called you to be in that small group this year? Because what we want to do is pick up the phone and call the ministry and say, why do you have that difficult kid in my kid's D group? I know, because we get those calls all the time. <laughs> okay? So, and that can be appropriate at times. I'm not saying it's not. But it might be nice to say, why do you think that really hard person's in your small group this year? Maybe God is calling you to come alongside that person. Maybe that person is a part of the sanctification process in your life this year. Because, right, it's not about just being happy. It's about being holy. And it's about suffering. And it's about hardship and turning to God in the midst of all these things. Um, you know, and how can I pray for you in this struggle? We have this, Cammie uh, is teaching me, and I'm doing it with my older kids more and more. Cammie came up with this sentence. I think I got it right. I know you'll make the right decision, and I'm praying for you. Okay? Um, I'm trying with my 21-year-old and my 18-year-old to use that sentence all the time. When they're sharing all this hard stuff with me, and I want to jump in and start, oh, but have you thought of this? And that? You know, then I start going, I know you'll make the right decision, and I'm praying for you, because they've got to be in the struggle themselves, all right? Um, let me pray for us, and Cammie's going to come up and share. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word, and Lord, this parenting thing is hard, and it's not for the weak. Uh, we, we struggle regularly with all of these different aspects, Lord, of living out our faith authentically in front of our kids. And Lord, it is tempting to be a hypocrite. Uh, we will be hypocrites at times. We will, we're going to mess up. We're going to do it wrong. And there's no formula uh, for living this out in a way that just guarantees that our kids are going to walk with you. So Lord, I pray that you would uh, just pour your grace into us as we parent Help us to ask some of these questions. What are the things we're teaching our kids unintentionally by our own blind spots that we have as parents as well? So we love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so full disclosure, it wasn't my idea. The I'm praying for you. That Susan Hunt came up with that, and she taught it at a women's conference I was at. And I just thought, oh, that's the piece we're missing as parents is... I know you'll do the right thing. I mean, that just doesn't roll off the lips, my lips. Let me tell you how to do the right thing is what usually <laughs> rolls off my lips. So I know you'll do the right thing, and I'm praying for you. It's been real helpful to our family. Um, I'm Cami Summers, and I'm Jeff's wife, and I love that he comes and teaches, and then I come and I share with you guys what that really looks like in our home. And some of what he teaches today, I just have to say, I hate to be uncomfortable. Do you hate to be uncomfortable? I hate it. And if I'm honest, I really want God to want me to be comfortable. I want him to protect me from suffering and sadness, and I want him to protect my kids too. And I don't know why I'm so averse to that. Um, when I was six years old, my parents divorced. When I was 12, my mother had a brain aneurysm, and she had a stroke, and she was very, very sick for a very long time. And my middle school years were spent teaching her to talk and to regain her control of life. And so I have experienced 
the suffering piece of it. Um, and I can remember, I didn't go to church a lot, but that was the, the way that the Lord brought me to getting to go to church more often because in the middle of that crisis, um, a friend offered to take me to church. And I can remember a very genuinely loving church woman looking at me as I was describing kind of what my life looked like with my mother. And she said, oh, what a privilege to get to serve your mother in that way. And I was 13 and I looked at her and went, uh-huh. And I thought, she is crazy. This is not a privilege. This is hard, and it stinks, and my childhood is being robbed from me, and I was dramatic even back then. <laughs> but it was, it was hard, but now looking back, I can see God in that. I really can. I can see how he used those grievous situations to, to bring me to a saving knowledge of who he was, who he is. And to prepare me for marriage and leaving my family and the life he had for me at a very early age. And so I know that God can use suffering. But I just don't want it. I don't want him to have to use suffering in my life. Um, the church, the household that I was raised in was that, I always have to read it, moralistic therapeutic deism. We didn't go to church regularly, but we definitely were moral. And... I think because of that background, it's very easy for me to feel like God is very far away. Do you guys feel that way sometimes? I mean, God is scary. He is holy. And I would like him to use a lot more lightning bolts to knock people down than he does. I don't want him to use it on me. (laughs) Only the people I deem worthy of it. But... You know, I don't understand why he does what he does sometimes. And in my not understanding, that's where I really see he is Lord. Um, and then I'm really bad at sacrifice. I mean, if you want the last Brussels sprout, I'll give it to you. But don't ask for the last brownie. I mean, you know, priorities, Right. I mean, and I really thought, you know, I thought when I was a little girl and I would occasionally go to church and I would see these older people who, you know, I'm 47, so probably older was over 25, but whatever. And I would look at them and I would think, oh, they are so godly. And they just seem to serve out of this sweet spirit. And I am 47 and there is no sweet in my spirit. I'm being honest. I thought it would be easier as I got older and I walked with the Lord more. I like what Steve Brown says. He says, I thought I'd be better by now. (laughs) Me too. But I find that I am surprised by my sin. And living out my faith authentically in front of my teens is hard. And if I am a billboard, I often say, it's all about me. Or get out of my way. Or clean something. (laughs) Anything, clean it. (laughs) Instead of follow Jesus. I want my billboard to be God is good and his love is unconditional. And maybe some days it is. But I find that often, in front of my teens, I authentically fall short. This week I got mad at one of my kids. And in my anger I lashed out. I was mean. And I made my child feel less than. And even in the moment of this train wreck... I am praying, God, show up. God, I need you. God, help me. And there was no, like, parting of the sky and 
this wisdom from God given to me. You know, at the end of the altercation, I didn't know if I'd made it better or worse, being honest. And I guess that's the hope that we as Christians have. What makes us different than that moralistic, whatever, whatever deism thing, therapeutic deism, is that even if we don't see God in the middle of it, we believe he's at work. In Hebrews, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I feel like I've said this a thousand times, but when my kids were little, they would hold up their little hand, and we had a children's pastor who would say, I will never leave you. And you point at yourself with the last finger, and that you only have five fingers, because that's really all you need to remember is God will never leave you. And I think God gave that as that children's director, because I needed that message for me. And even more now that we have teenagers is that God will never leave me. We can get it wrong. We can fall short. We can get mad in sin. But we can also trust God as a redeemer. The one who takes ashes and makes something beautiful. The moralistic, therapeutic deists don't know that God is right here with us. He loved us enough to put on skin and walk in this world. And he, through the cross, gives us access to God's presence. We don't have to fear he's far off. And now Jesus promises he's on the right hand of God and he's praying for us. That's really what we want to model for our kids. I want to give you guys a minute. Well, part of the reason we meet in tables is because we want you to get to know each other, and we have some time as we're wrapping up, just to share prayer requests with those at your table and to pray together for each other. I don't know what of this has resonated or hurt or <laughs> helped, but I want us to. I don't want anybody to leave here without being prayed for. So y'all pray around your tables, and then as you guys deem appropriate, you can leave. We will tell you when it, in about 10 minutes, just so you guys know the time, but that gives you about 10 minutes to pray together. Thanks, guys. All right. I did want to let you know it's about 10 after, just so you know timing-wise. And um, next week, a little preview. We're going to talk about what it means to be a covenant kid. You know, we kind of throw that around. What does the covenant mean? What does it mean to be a covenant breaker? Um, so we'll, we'll kind of jump into some of the theology of that next week as well. So that's a little preview there. Hope you have a great Sunday and enjoy the rest of your day.